Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and this is an extra sort of bonus episode. Regular listeners may remember that my daughter Jenny has been on the podcast a couple of times, once to talk about Halo Jones, and then on episode 68 where we did the Game of You story from Neil Gaiman's The Sandman Run. And we got quite a lot of positive feedback about that episode, so during the lockdown we decided we would cover the rest of The Sandman in a separate podcast which we've called A Handful of Dust. In each episode we cover one of the trade collections and we'll probably go on to do some of the spin-offs when we reach the end of the run as well. That will probably take us up to about 15 episodes in total. You can find that new podcast at handfulofdustpodcast.blogspot.com Look in the show notes for this episode and you'll find a link or search for A Handful of Dust in your podcasts app. Now, I'm putting the first episode on here as a way of advertising the new feed, but don't worry, if the Sandman's not your thing, then normal service will be resumed next Sunday with a book club episode about One-Eyed Jack and Valiant comic. But if you are interested, then here is the first episode of A Handful of Dust. Thank you for listening. Welcome to A Handful of Dust. This is a podcast about Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, uh, the comic and its collected editions. I'm Jenny. And I'm Eamon. And we probably should start, uh, as we'll have to start a lot of these episodes, I guess, with a content warning. So this is a content note, just that the comics um, deal with sometimes dark and troubling subject matters that listeners and readers might want to steer around. and we might refer to them in our discussions as well. So for more information, we'll put details of things in the books and the things we cover in the description for this episode. Uh, so you can go and look there and see if there's anything you want to avoid. Yeah, we'll try and put all that in the show notes. Um, yes, there are some difficult issues. And it's unfortunate, perhaps, that the first three trades we're going to be looking at um, all deal with uh, sexual abuse of some form or other, unfortunately. So um, warning about that. There is uh, there is mention and reference to rape and sexual abuse. So uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Um, probably everybody knows this is a DC comic that ran from 1989 to 1996. Those are the cover dates, although I think the first issue was actually actually came out in November 1988. Uh, it's been collected in 10 trades, which we've got, and we're going to try and do each one if this works. But first of all, we should probably start with a little bit more context about our first experience with the comic. Can you remember when you first came across The Sandman? Yes, and this is already um, on the record, as I think we discussed it on Mega City Book Club um, when we talked about A Game of You, which is one of the collected volumes. So I'm pretty sure that what I said then and what I'm going to say now is the truth, is that you, in fact, I don't, we should probably mention that uh, you're my father. Yes, we surely, yeah, <laughs> we should say that. This is, this is a father and daughter podcast talking about a shared comic that we've read. Yeah, we've done two episodes of Mega City Book Club together. 
talking about Halo Jones and the game of you. Um, so it's, yeah, if you're coming into this for the first time, yeah, this is a father and daughter production. Um, yeah, you handed me a game of you. I think I busted a bit about, um, 15, I think we decided 14, 15. Right. Maybe. I remember I tried to date it from like what other stuff I started reading after that. But I remember, yeah, you gave me a game of you, I think the collected edition. And then I went back and worked my way through the um, issues that you had because you had all, you had the, you have the whole run, I believe. It's in a, it's in, yeah, the whole run is here in a comic box. It's got your name on it though. It's your box. (laughs) My inheritance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I think I, I definitely remember reading some as trades and some as the single is the original single issues. I think the early ones I read as trades because I remember the very bad printing in those early trades. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how I found it. Were you reading it um, when it was first published? Well, I was trying to, I did like you did, trying to think back to when I first came across it. And I have to say, I didn't, I wasn't an early adopter. I didn't jump on board right from issue one. I think, actually, that the first issue I picked up in a comic shop probably was from A Game of You. So that's quite, you know, that's about 30 issues or so into the run. Uh, And then, so that puts it, I guess, about 1991 or thereabouts uh, when I first picked it up. And then, of course, I started trying to hunt down the back issues. uh, And we ended up with the trade collections as well. Um, and of course, in the early '90s, picking up back issues wasn't altogether straightforward. Um, you had to hunt them down. It was, you know, it was um, no eBay, no eBay, or at least yeah, a long t- before eBay. So yeah, getting hold of them. But we did manage to get a complete run uh, eventually. And of course, I carried on reading once I'd realised what I was missing. Uh, so yeah, it's probably the early '90s for me is when I started, and then worked my way backwards to the beginning, like you did. I think it's, I mean, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later on, but I kind of hope that new readers are eased in gently and not given book one of The Sandman. Um, Ah. Yeah. I was going to ask you that at the end, whether this was a good one to hand (laughs) to the new readers. I I jumped ahead. I think think we mentioned this in A Game of You, that it's a pretty good introduction because it gives you a sort of like, self-contained story and introduces you to like the concepts of dreaming whereas like we'll talk about book one but reading it again now I sort of was like yeah I remember reading this and not understanding half of it not getting it until the very like last couple of issues in the book and because it's sort of yeah I wonder if when it came out in the late 80s whether it was like similar to other stuff and so it wasn't as a, a shock to read it but I don't know. We can talk okay. about that more later on. <laughs> Before I ask you about book one, what I mean, the whole of Sandman, the whole 75-issue run, uh, what's it about? Is it about, for instance, if I said to you it's the King of Dreams who uh, starts out in captivity, gets his freedom, and then has to learn how to change and make a huge decision... Or is it a book or a comic book or a comic run that's about stories, about myths and fables, um, and about Neil Gaiman basically getting to play with all these wonderful stories from human history? I think it's kind of both. I like it definitely has this like central narrative, which you were very kind, I think, to refer to Morpheus um, as the king of dreams, 
when you could also describe him as a sulky, <laughs> not a teen exactly, but a sulky man uh, with some serious issues, some serious relationship issues going about his life and taking a really long time to sort some stuff out. But I think the value that it has for me as a run of comics and the value I think it has for a lot of other people I know who've read it is the second one, is the stories and the myths and the sort of playful elements and the sort of that thing that Neil Gaiman does quite well in all of his books is sort of these slightly fairy tale-ish constructed stories that sort of sweep you up and bring you to sort of a like interesting place and then sort of like let you hang around there for a while, um, which I think like... I'm always thinking about American Gods when I'm reading The Sandman of these sort of collected up little like pockets of folk tale and obviously like religious tales in that case and the sort of way he weaves them together to create a sort of like overarching structure is really interesting. So I think if I was going to sell this book to someone or sell the run to someone, I would say, yeah, this is a book about myths and fables. And I think we'll probably discuss this in a couple of books Time, but um, I think a couple of people I've recommended the book to, I've either given them A Game of You or Dream Country, I think. Right, yes, which as is the third like, trade collection. Yeah, as to sort of say, like, this is what is special about this run. Because for some people, I knew that, like, those one off issues would be much more, like, accessible and they really do shine that sort of, like, story and mythology and the sort of scope of. The realm of dreaming and what it means and yeah okay <laughs> that was a long answer that's what the, no, it's, that's all right. what it's, it's good <laughs> i mean I, I think the answer is it is both um mm. and yes is he the king of dreams or is he the most uh, self-centered appallingest excuse for anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane an infantile adolescent pathetic specimen <laughs> we'll you come are to that bit. <laughs> we'll come to that bit later on at the end of book one yeah Okay, so let's turn to book one. This is the first trade, and it is called mm-hmm. Preludes and Nocturnes, yeah. which I guess is a sort of uh, musical studies reference. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a ter- it's like terminology that comes from music, but in my former life as an art historian, kind of, um, you'd also find it used in painting. It's sort of like turn-of-the-century fad well, not fad, but like thing to combine your painting with music terminology. So I think the sort of expressionists were famous for it, I believe. Uh, Whistler actually was kind of a big guy for it. And I don't think Turner, but maybe Monet as well, or Manet, or one of them. Right. <laughs> yeah, you'll find paintings that are called like preludes and nocturnes as well. So I feel like that's a sort of little bit of literary callback to this musical artistic way of defining a chapter of something okay all right so oh, it's interesting art history as well as music mm. okay so what about the synopsis who wants to give the synopsis of what, what happens because this collects the first eight issues what happens yeah. in the first eight issues of the sandman uh, ah. <laughs> maybe we should both do it and see <laughs> see who remembers the most okay well shall i <laughs> i mean it starts with uh, this character, Dream or Morpheus, the king of dreams, uh, the lord of the the, dream, the dreaming, has been captured by some occultists and basically spends 70 years in the first issue trapped in a glass globe or sphere or glass prison. And while he's in captivity, 
during the 20th century, things go wrong for humanity because he, the Lord of the Dream is not there. And then in the rest of these first eight issues, he will escape. Uh, he will go on a sort of journey to regain um, some items of power that were taken from him. Uh, he'll regain his his realm, the Dreaming. And, of course, along the way, he'll meet some other comic book characters and we might talk a little bit about where the comic goes in terms of genre, but we'll get to that in a minute. That's how I would describe it. What would you say? Yeah, I think I'd go similar. I mean, for me, the first issue is kind of strange because it doesn't feel like it's about dream at all and it sort of doesn't let you know that this is who the Sandman is or who dream is. Like, you just sort of know that there's a shadowy figure so it starts off it kind of wrong, wrong fits you to think that maybe this is more of a like story about this like british archaic occult society and then yeah it becomes dream sort of like journey of something not quite redemption more like tying up loose ends cleaning up his mess kind of thing and yeah you're right he meets sort of a bunch of characters that feel only a few of them I really recognise from what I presume is the larger DC universe. And yeah, it's a sort of, yeah, a journey of, I think actually, I think I'm going to be sort of slightly quoting because my, the collection I have, which I think is the most recent trade. Yeah, the 30th anniversary most recent, one. Yeah, yeah. Has an introduction by Patrick Rothfuss in it. And he refers to this as like the sort of classic hero's journey of like a quest and a, redemption arc and like meeting people along the way kind of thing um so i think there definitely is that to it yeah it's quite interesting because the first issue which i think was double length yeah it's chunky it's it's chunky chunky, the first one isn't it and it's only the last i guess six or eight pages where dream escapes that we actually get to you know to start finding a bit about the title character the sandman in that he actually starts to he gets we get a sort of like he's in a monologue. We get captions on panels where he's actually thinking about what's going on. Because previously, he's just been this sort of silent figure trapped behind glass who uh, just, you know, watches the occultists all grow old and die without giving them what, what they want. Because uh, they were trying to capture... They were, of course, trying to capture death. Yeah. And um, we'll come to her shortly. But, yes, all right. So they've captured Dream. He escapes and then... We sort of meet him through his captions, which is quite interesting because that text, the like white on black outlined text box was going to become, is like obviously it's, it's his speech bubbles and his thought bubbles. And they are sort of, I think one of the defining things of the whole run is the way he talks and the way nobody else talks like him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It only just occurred to me and I was thinking like, I don't know what his voice is sounds like to me you know he's speaking dream dream speak yes he is and he's depicted always as a sort of like tall thin pale face almost completely white gaunt faced character with lots of black hair and his clothing is always usually you know uh, 
um, comic book blacks. So, yeah, yeah. blues and bl- dark blues inky, and blacks. Inky blues. Yes. Although, interestingly, one of the you know features is that his clothing adapts to the time period of humanity. So when we see him later on in the, the run, when he, you know, we see flashback stories, um, his clothing is always appropriate for the era that he's actually yeah. in, which is nicely and I done. Think- yeah, there's definitely, and there's a few moments in this volume where that is very apparent, and I think is like a crucial moment, but we can get to that later. Okay, so a little bit of background. It's 1988, 1989. Neil Gaiman has sort of got into comics. He's done some 2000 AD. He has written uh, Black Orchid for DC Comics, and Karen Berger is quite an important figure. You know, she's the editor. Uh, she will later go on to found the Vertigo line for DC. And, of course, mm-hmm. one of the Sandman issues, I think, becomes the very first Vertigo comic, although it's quite late in the run. I think that's 47 is when it becomes officially Vertigo somewhere. I think oh, it's okay. 1993. Anyway, she talks to Neil Gaiman about taking over an old DC comic bit like Alan Moore had done with Swamp Thing, you know, give mm-hmm. Al, give the new British guy a failing comic that's on the point of cancellation and see what he can do with it. Because there are, in the DC universe, there are two previous Sandmen. Uh, in fact, I guess there are three, actually. But there's a 1930s sort of pulp adventurer Sandman who has a gas mask and a gas gun that puts people to sleep and he fights crime in an orange suit and a purple cape. And then in the 1970s, uh, 1974, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, two very famous comic book creators, did, a, I think, a six-issue run of The Sandman about this rather colourful um, superhero character who operates in the dream dimension. And... Karen Berger sort of handed Neil Gaiman the idea of a Sandman comic, but said to him, apparently said to him, but the only thing is we want a new Sandman. Yeah. And somehow or other, Neil Gaiman decides to tell this wonderful 75-issue story. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what his plans were at the start, about the Lord of Dreams, the actual mm-hmm. Sandman um, which is just fantastic. And, of course, we will see in this first volume, I think we do see... Yeah, there's a reference to the first Sandman, isn't yes, there? Yes, there is, that a character is inspired somehow to take on this gas mask figure. Yeah. Oh, here he As is, I found him. Filling the void that's been left by Morpheus being trapped. Because the thing that's in the first issue is the sort of sleeping sickness thing, which is supposed to have afflicted the world because of dream being absent but that's actually a real thing right that was a yeah like, that was a real thing, a thing was, that happened yeah something called encephalitis lethargica which was a probably a post-viral affliction in the late uh, i guess the late 19 teens and into the 1920s that afflicted people it's covered quite famously in the Robin Williams and Robert De Niro film The Awakenings where some of the uh, people who are suffering from this condition are treated with uh, Parkinson disease drugs and start to wake Mm -hmm. up but of course here in The Sandman Neil Gaiman incorporates that so he has various people uh, in the story I think there's three main characters who just in this first volume they just basically they just fall asleep yeah I think it's Four, because one of their story is like a World War One 
shell shock victim, and I think that story ends um, in a suicide quite early on. Ah, right, okay, yes. And then the other three continue, and they wake up when Dream is freed, or frees himself. I'm looking at a page, so there's Ellie Marston, uh, Daniel Bustamante, Stefan Rossman, and then in London, England, Unity Kincaid. Yeah. So they are they are the characters that we sort of follow in a way through their sleeping as the century unfolds with Dream in his prison. Okay. I mean, we kind of got off track there a little bit because we were talking about <laughs> But I think, obviously, I know a little bit about how to sort of the British authors being snapped up by American comic book companies. I think that's something that 2000 AD has always had like a little bit of a grudge about, right? That they find the British guys and then they got shipped off to America. Yeah, the British invasion of the 80s, as it was referred to, um, which probably does start with Alan Moore, with, mm. uh, you know, the editor of the Swamp Thing comic, I think it was Len Wein at the time, sort of ringing up a guy that he'd seen writing 2000 AD and Warrior comic over here and asking him to take on Swamp Thing. And then he could create this wonderful, really sort of like gripping horror comic and makes mm-hmm. it one of DC's. You know, from from being like the worst selling line of comics on the point of cancellation, I think he took it to be one of its big main sellers every month. And then you get various other characters who go over as well, and lots of the artists, Brian Bolland, David Gibbons, and so on, people like that. And then Neil Gaiman, who's obviously just like full of, he's made of stories, isn't he, Neil Gaiman? He's just, he's, <laughs> um, yeah. if Dream is made of the dreaming, Neil Gaiman is just made of stories, it would seem. And I think, I mean, I don't I think I haven't read much something, but my impression of these sort of late 80s, early 90s comics, especially those ones associated with the British invasion, were that they were quite, they were horror comics in a way, or they were like darker and grittier than the sort of flashy, colourful American superhero stuff that was happening. And I guess that's what Vertigo is kind of famous for as well. Yes. That this stuff was like not shiny spandex <laughs> like wearing superheroes this was like a little bit more rooted in reality and a little bit more dark and i think if that if my <laughs> depiction of that is accurate then i think that explains why the first book and also when we get onto it the second book have these sort of like quite i think now it's it's subject matter isn't as shocking because we're quite saturated with it but it still feels like surprisingly dark especially when you consider like where the run goes or what sort of neil gaiman is known for now um you know like literally writing children's books now so or you know and other stuff but i think probably the first neil gaiman i ever read was Coraline, and so you know like yeah they're sort of yeah it's got the darkness is still there but the maybe like quite tough horrible elements have been sort of like filtered out of his more recent work, I think. So I wanted to ask you about genre in comics mm-hmm. um, and what genre you would put the Sandman or what genres the Sandman touches on, particularly in this first volume. And I'm going to sort of go off on a side sidebar about horror comics, as you said, because for ages we know horror comics were banned. They weren't allowed to use the, particularly the horror archetypes, the vampire, the werewolf, the zombie, were not allowed in comics because of the comics code going, you know, way back to the 1950s. 
And then in the 70s, they start to break out and they reintroduce horror comics and horror hosts, some of whom Neil Gaiman will use in The Sandman. And then in the 80s, we're still doing superhero comics, so it's still shiny people in tights hitting each other. (laughs) But they start to get these darker, more horrific themes to them. Uh, Obviously, Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Both. I guess comic books that were aimed at adults, right? Yes, I think so, yes. Yeah, comics that certainly had grown up and aimed at a more adult audience, although they also have their own problems, I think, but, you know, we perhaps won't get to those. I think that we can probably safely assume that in the 80s and early 90s, the comic book audience was largely presumed to be white heterosexual men. Yes. And so that feeds in to, yeah, maybe some of the problems with them, whether that was probably not true, but, you know, that was the presumption and where stuff was being aimed. Yeah, I um, think that's probably true for the mid-80s, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, Sandman, well, let's say Swamp Thing managed to do uh, horror. I mean, and Adam Moore used some of the archetypes, but he managed to do a very sort of modern take on a horror comic that really did become quite scary in places. I remember it being very disturbing to read. But I think Neil Gaiman in The Sandman, he does use some of the archetypes. You know, there are going to be werewolf stories, uh, there's demons and devils, you know, there's there's a visit to hell in this first volume. But there's also that... That weird modern horror where, you know, horror is the awful things that people can do to each other, um, yeah. which goes back in a way to our content warning that there is some of this, this stuff uh, in these first, particularly these first few volumes we're going to be talking about. And I, I'm interested that a later story in this run will win the World Fantasy Award. And would you call this a fantasy comic or would you call it a horror comic? Or does it just sort of like... Uh, tread you know go backwards and forwards between them i think by the end of the run it's sitting more comfortably in fantasy but i definitely feel like it starts here in horror um just thinking like even the artwork in the first issue we get the backstory of we get the backstory of everyone but you know we get the backstory of one of the characters being killed and there's like this really violent blood splatter with eyeballs popping and it just is like it's a lot. It's like only like one panel, but it's like quite gory. And later, as some of the like dreams will be depicted more as nightmares, you get a similar sort of thing. So I definitely feel like early on in this book, the horror elements are quite close to the front. And as you say, like it's the fantasy horror of the demons and devils in hell. And then it's the very real horror of, say, the story with John Constantine, where it's a much more although the fantasy element is still there, it's a much more sort of like sad story about drug abuse, really, which I think is really interesting that those sort of blend together. Yes. And of course, I think like that sort of, I mean, I guess there's elements of the fantasy throughout, but like those moments where it's rooted in reality is where really where like, I think Neil Gaiman is a little bit more comfortable. I think the hell story is a sort of a bit, of a wild one for me. I'm not really sure how I feel about it. And we'll probably talk about this later when we talk about another volume, Seasons of Mist. Yeah, I've never really been like super in- interested in that storyline that sort of continued there. We'll come to that. We'll just, uh, I mean, I'm just noting, I guess, that, 
you know, for a book about dreams and the dreaming and the Lord of the Dream, um, I suppose it's entirely appropriate that when we think of dreams, most of us often think of nightmares. And, you know, throughout the the run, um, there will be nightmares, won't there? Um, Both for us as readers and particularly for, you know, the characters. It's definitely an interesting element to this idea that, like, the dreams and nightmares are the same, come from the same place and they're close they're like very close to each other kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's sort of an interesting element. And I do sort of feel like in this first book, the moments where the dreaming is explored is sort of the best the best bits, kind of. Yeah. There's an there's a couple of times where we see Morpheus dream travel by travel by dream, like moving through people's dreams. And I think those little snippets literally like, you know, each one gets like a little narrative bubble and a little like one or two panels and you sort of get this sort of like very rich sense of like the dreams can be anything and sort of I guess Neil Gaiman trying like playing a little bit and being like well what if it's you know a dream can be anything so what what are these dreams like what are the specifics here okay so I'm going to ask you about characters and callbacks and foreshadowing we've already mentioned that the Sandman is in a sense is sort of based on two previous DC Comics characters, or at least woven into this. We'll find out more about them, particularly um, the later versions, the Kirby and Simon versions in the next volume. But you've mentioned we've got John Constantine, who is a sort of down-to-earth, hard-nosed British, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, sort of occultist, occult investigator or uh, street-level magician who sorts out things. It was introduced by Alan Moore in Swamp Thing. And then in the next issue, we get the A Hope in Hell, which is, as you say, a depiction of hell. Again, we get Jack Kirby's The Demon character shows up briefly. Oh, okay. I didn't even realise that was a reference. So, yeah. The the, sort of the first demon he meets. Yeah, Etrigan, the demon, was a Jack, again, is a Jack Kirby creation with a a short run comic from the 70s. I guess that explains the colour scheme yeah exactly the the primary colours that's right he's very Kirby-esque and then Alan Moore again used him in Swamp Thing and Neil Gaiman is obviously you know using some of the tools that uh, Alan Moore created uh, in Mm -hmm. this first volume and then we also get a trip to Arkham Asylum where famously Batman wait before we go on to Arkham Asylum I think we should also mention that in this hell he meets Lucifer Morningstar who is David Bowie, just straight up. It's just straight up David Bowie. Like it's young David Bowie. It's like Space Odyssey David Bowie. Like it just, it just is. Have you heard <laughs> that? Have you heard that line that Neil Gaiman said to the artist? If he's not David Bowie, then it's not. You know, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's David Bowie. David Bowie. David just, Bowie. Just David Bowie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he is. Lucifer in Hell is very David Bowie, particularly in that issue. But also we're going to get Arkham Asylum, where Batman's sort of rogues gallery get lucked up briefly until they're needed mm-hmm. in another another issue. And we're also going to get an appearance of the Justice League of America. Yeah. Uh, who'll turn up briefly. Now, obviously, Karen Berg is the editor. There's this idea that DC Comics have all got to be in a shared universe so that, you know, the Sandman exists in the same universe as Superman and Batman. And you're, as you said yourself, you're less familiar with these characters. Mm-hmm. So when the green-skinned Martian Manhunter turns up, you probably... No idea. No, no idea. idea. Or Scott Free, Mr. Miracle? No, no idea. Right. 
So did it bother you to have these characters turn up? Um and who you know who are parts of the story at least in this first volume. I mean I think I think as the run continues Neil Gaiman does it less and less often and the yeah. Sandman becomes more its own thing, doesn't it? And in the he there's like an author's note at the back of my trade and he sort of mentions it's kind of clumsy the way he's tried to like fit everyone in. Yeah, I don't think it bothers me so much. It, they're sort of contextual and I kind of prefer that it's these more obscure characters rather than it being Batman, you know, like, I think that helps to sort of make it less obvious, you know. Yeah, and I don't, I think there's, like, enough contextual clues that you understand what's going on and who they're supposed to be. You know, we see Scott Free's dream and we we understand that, like, guy's a Martian and we get, like, a little bit of, like, Martian faith, which is unusual. Yeah, I don't think it, like, I don't think it bothered me reading. I mean, like, as I've previously said, the first reading the first book for the first time, I remember being like, I don't really know what this is. Like, I'm sort of, I thought I knew because I was reading, I read Game of You, but this feels different. So I think I felt like that throughout the way. So that wasn't like a standout point of being like confused. <laughs> does it does it feel like when Neil Gaiman, maybe Alan Moore, but particularly Neil Gaiman refers to a mythology or a fairy story that you're not familiar with that it, you know you know he's referring to some country or some culture's mythology but you're not familiar with the story yourself yeah i think that's definitely what it's like because you are not familiar with that culture or that story but you know the archetype right yeah you understand like a fairy tale has this very set structure um, and pattern to it and this end I think superheroes are the same they have like you know I sort of understand the language of superheroes and who these people are supposed to be in the same way that yeah when you introduce a sort of new folktale or a new pantheon of gods I understand the logic because I've seen other ones as sort of pattern recognition in that sense so yeah I don't think it's like jarring and you know in the scope of this book not the thing that like stands out and annoys me when I read it now. <laughs> no, okay. I mean, I, I did. I find as I read through it, and it's a bit like American Gods, actually, as you say, um, that when you read through them, you think, uh, so is this a mythology that actually exists, or is it something that Neil Gaiman has has conjured out of whole cloth mm -hmm. himself? And sometimes I'm looking them up, and I guess you know this this our discussions on this podcast we're not going to be annotating. We're not going to be, I'm afraid, to tell you whether or not all of these different um, stories that Neil Gaiman uses and tells, whether them are based on, on something from culture or whether they're just something he's made up. But I just wonder that, you know, the same with the superheroes and the DC stuff, whether, um, you know, it just seems like another mythology you're just not, you don't, you're not familiar with, but you accept it as story and yeah. how it works in the uh, the issue. Yeah. Okay, so let's... Uh, before we get onto the subject, uh, which I was going to ask you about, which is like women in comics, let's just talk about the horror for a moment. Because <laughs> uh, there's a couple of issues in the middle of this first eight, which particularly I think I'm thinking of the of the issue called 24 Hours. Yeah, I mean that's that was the one I was referring to earlier when I said the one that I have larger problems with. Um, uh yeah. Okay, so this is a group of characters trapped in an American diner for 24 hours 
with a weird, again, you know, supervillain from the Justice League of America's past called Dr. Destiny, a sort of very minor character that Neil Gaiman has used here, who has... He has Dreams Ruby or Dreams Dreamstone, which has some yeah. sort of power to to alter reality, I guess. Um, and so for 24 hours, these people trapped in this diner and the most horrible things they do to themselves and to each other throughout this, this issue. Yeah. It, you know, we... There are some there are some content problems that we mentioned right at the start. Uh, some of them are in this issue, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> Does I, it, think... I mean, you don't, I'm getting the feeling that you don't particularly like this issue at all. So I think the problem I have is that, like, I I like the format. I think it's like a quite interesting. It's almost like a bottle episode. You know, it's you get these characters, you trap them in this space, and you see what happens. But the difference here is you have this like malevolent extra person who is manipulating them, and what we get and let's just I think it was just like talk about it like there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of gore yes. in this. There are some troubling references to sexual assault, and yeah, I mean sexual assault more than one. Yeah, and there's also sexual content which I guess could be very much classed as like a non-consensual because we understand that this guy is controlling them. And it sort of is one of those like feels a little bit like an exercise in what is the worst thing I can put on the page. And I understand the spirit behind it, if that makes sense. I understand that what we're supposed to understand is like who Dr. Destiny is and like he's a villain this is his villain setup right this is his full like full-on yeah he's the worst man possible and i feel like nowadays i'm less inclined to need as much detailing you know it sort of feels a little bit like yeah like i said like an like an exercise and just like the worst things you could possibly imagine which includes and like you know actually i forgot there's like homophobic slurs there's like elements that don't feel like nowadays would come up in a visual way you know like oh they're not like none I don't think there's anything super explicit but like I think sometimes reading comics feels much more graphic because you're like you're looking at a whole page of like color and visual indications that this stuff kind of sticks out for me it's like a big swing and I kind of wish I liked this episode this like issue more but I, reading it now, I really can't find much enjoyment in it because I know the sort of moments that are going to make me feel very uncomfortable. And I'm sure for others, could be much worse than that for them. Yeah. And, you know, I think she, she's not the first queer character we're introduced to. I think there's indications in the first book that one of the characters is in a queer relationship. But we meet Judy who we'll probably refer to in the run of comics later on, but we meet a, a, like an openly queer woman who's having a breakup, like he's in the midst of a breakup with her girlfriend. She's wearing like a leather jacket and a bunch of badges. She's like a like very sort of like archetype late eighties queer woman. And she is, as everyone is in this comic, a victim at the end. And that's kind of frustrating, 
you know, she's like, she seems like a really interesting person. And we learn about her later in the run and maybe she has her own flaws. But like at that point, she's sort of the first female character to be given, I guess there's a few, there's a few others, but do they all meet some kind of terrible end? I think they do. I think they do. Um, Yes, unfortunately, yes, they do. But yeah, I think for me, she was like the first character where I was like, oh, she seems interesting. Like this is in the 80s. This is something I can sort of like get hold of. And then it's like, oh, no, this is going to go really badly, um, you know, which is really disappointing to read. Yeah. I mean, I think this this particular issue is the one that I was not looking forward to. No, I agree. It's, it's the one when I. Yeah, there's a couple of issues, one in this first collection and one in the next collection, which we'll be doing in the next episode. The Doll's House. There's a couple of issues that I don't look forward to when I get to them, and this is yeah. the one here. Twenty four hours. It, it does feel. Um, it's very uncomfortable read, um, and basically, you know, without giving too much away, all the characters in the diner, apart from the villain, will end up dead by the end of the issue. Yeah, after being basically tortured. Tortured and you know abused. Hours. Yeah, it's awful. Um, mm. And it is interesting, as you say, that, that you know the female characters who we've encountered so far have either been abused or they've been killed, haven't they? Yeah, none of them have had a good run. No. And I think, I mean, we talked about this um, a little bit in a game of you, where we were sort of talking about the treatment of the trans woman character in that that sort of became they're sort of they're problematic because we know that for a really long time this is the only way women were depicted like i'm not saying that neil gaiman can't write good female characters i know that he can but this is very of its time to say we're not in the writing process there was clearly no question of like well maybe we should have a female character who doesn't die and maybe We'll talk about this. Maybe they do think that, and that's why we get to meet Death, and she's female at the end, and we sort of find some kind of interesting, I don't know, flip of that idea. But within this first run, before we get to the final issue, final to the eighth issue here, we meet characters who are sexually assaulted. We meet characters who are depicted as sort of either um, there's a wife in the first issue who like betrays them. There's Unity Kincaid, who we'll talk about in the next book probably a little bit more, who's sexually abused. There's Ellie, who doesn't have much of a life. She lives, she ends up in a mental institution, and we sort of, I think there's a depiction that looks like one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing. You know, it doesn't yeah. depict that as a happy place for her to be. And in the John Constantine episode uh, issue, we meet his ex-girlfriend, who's addicted first to heroin and then is now addicted to like dream energy basically dream dust or the yeah. bag of sand yeah bag of sand and i think i was actually when i was reading it um just before we recorded i was reading this episode and i was like actually at the end of this when dream found her and she's in a poor state and he basically says like the the dust is the only thing that's keeping her alive and he goes to walk away i think He's like, okay, I'm done. That's a dream, by the way. Morpheus goes to walk away. And John Constantine's like, um, no, <laughs> you have to help her. Like, you have. And so he gives her a sort of happy ending and a dream that's uh, like a nice dream that sends her into death. And I think I was reading that and I was like, oh, it's John Constantine is like the first person to be like, um, could you not just walk away from this situation? 
Um, and weirdly, Dream does not learn that lesson, I don't think. He doesn't take that sort of compassion very far. Um, and we'll talk about that in The Doll's House too, um, the next book. But uh, yeah, there's just a sort of float of female characters who are pretty hard done by in this first book. And it's kind of disappointing to read it now. Yeah, it is slightly difficult to read now, I think. And I wonder, you know, if it was still the early days, the comic's still finding its feet, Neil Gaiman's still mm. working out what he's doing. He knows he's supposed to deliver a sort of horror comic, so he gives us some very sort of modern, real disturbing horror. And his characters, again, maybe there's that problem with genre, as you say, that in genre, characters who are not normally represented and not the white heterosexual males, they often get bad endings, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. They do indeed. And yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> is all there is to say. And I think I have like haven't read the whole run recently like we'll be reading it as I go along as we do this podcast but I seem to remember there are a few occasions where that trend is bucked in this run but there are still sort of like you know even towards the end we still get characters who are like female characters who are being mistreated or misrepresented and sort of like given this sort of like hard life in comparison to the male characters yeah but I think to sort of like maybe get off the hypercritical and like rightfully critical thing about everything that happens in issue one to seven to talk about issue eight. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. I just feeling like maybe we could like shake it up a little bit. Cause I, I was wondering that I was like, if we're going to record this podcast, am I going to be able to like find anything positive <laughs> to say? Cause I really don't love this, this first book as much as I come to love the later books, I think. Well, let's turn to issue eight, The Sound of Her Wings, which is thankfully included now at the end of this trade, because I think the first trades, they didn't include that story. They sort of rolled it into the doll's house. But anyway, Uh here it is, The Sound of Her Wings. I mean, possibly one of the most, you know, one of the best known uh, issues, individual issues from the Sandman run. Yeah. Um, This is where he seems to find his feet, doesn't he? Yeah, and like I mentioned earlier, there's an epilogue in my trade where he says exactly that where he's like that's when i got it that's when i understood it and that's what like here we go i'll quote uh so this is uh, essentially a piece written in 1991 so it must have been maybe in the first trade that was published um so he says the sound of her wings was the epilogue and the first story in the sequence i felt was truly mine and in which i knew i was beginning to find my own voice and i think that's how i feel about it. like that's when I recognize Neil Gaiman's voice and I recognize the way he tells the way I knew he tells stories. And also it's got death in it and death becomes the fan favorite and one of my favorites. And also I think where we get a little bit more like of dream, we understand him a little bit more. So, And the dream that will continue, we sort of, he's the version of dream that will continue in the rest of the run. So he's regained his powers in his realm and he's sitting somewhere um, I'm not sure which city. Washington is... Square Park, I believe. Oh, right, okay. Washington Square Park. He's feeding I the pigeons. I think so. That, that archway, I believe, is New York, Washington Square Park. Oh, right, okay. And we find out, of course, that he has got an older sister, Death. Yes. Uh, who will, as you say, become one of the main, um, the most popular characters in this run uh, and beyond it. And he is still a miserable very gothy, you know, dare I say, is he sort of emo? He's very sort of like... 
yeah, I guess he's sort of got in the 80s emo in the noughties. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's very sort of, he is pathetic and miserable. And as we found out earlier in this this trade, he's had, he has to be reminded to do the right thing from time to time. Yeah. And then we find we meet his sister, Death, who, you know, astonishingly for a character who is literally the personification of Death, she is the most one of the most positive and cheerful and sort of, you know, enthralling characters in all of comics, isn't she? She is just like a full breath of fresh air in this uh, book. And, yeah, like this is, I think, yeah, known as one of the, best issues and sort of every you know every page in it introduces like a new little thing that she's remembered for or like element it's a nicely written piece I think I was when I was thinking about it I was like this is the time you see like we've had all the dark and gritty stuff earlier and there is there are some dark things in this as well because it deals with death so naturally um and Neil Gaiman doesn't shy away from them or turn his back on sort of those darker more like grittier elements of reality but they're handled with a tenderness and a like softness that the earlier issues did not and that comes from or either comes from death or i associate it with death or her character after that because it's sort of the way she approaches her job seems to be particular to her i think later in the in the run of books we learn more about the the endless the endless there we go we learn more about them and how they're actually very like they're not a fixed thing they are they fluctuate and they have personalities and so i think there is this idea that like this is her and this is her approach to death and her approach is like tender and friendly and not like scary or sulky like you know like dream has shown he has the capacity to be both horrible and unthinking and sulky and self-obsessed and she is just like the complete flip of that and i don't know about framing her as as the big sister and him as the little brother also sort of changes your opinion on him to be like he was gone from this sort of like not an anti-hero maybe in the previous comics he has been this sort of like righteous figure battling demons and real things and like squashing villains and making them minuscule and then we turn out that he's someone's little brother. And it's like, it's a nice, like, that sort of rounding out of the character that was needed, I think. Yes. And again, yeah, that's why it, that's why it's the best issue. Like, yes, it is. It's the best yeah. issue in this first trade. Uh, it is a marvelous issue. And she is just a wonderful character who he, he sort of follows her as she walks through the world, visiting basically people at the moment of their death, mm-hmm. but doing it in a sort of humane, calm, charming, as you say, almost witty and gentle sort of way, as opposed to his drippy, dour, miserable, gothic um, <laughs> take on things and the fact that he yeah. is, he will constantly, throughout the run, have to be reminded to do the, the right thing from time to time. Mm-hmm. I think he gets better. I mean, this is obviously one of the things about the run is that, you know, it's Dream actually becoming a better anthropomorphic personification <laughs> of the concept of dream than he is yeah. at the start but uh she's just marvelous 
And this, this particular issue, The Sound of Her Wings, is just wonderful. And it ends with a beautiful sort of panel of Dream back in the park after they've walked the world, just, you know, throwing out a handful of grain for the pigeons and saying, I hear it, the sound of, her, the sound of wings. It's yeah. just lovely, isn't it? It really is. And it's like, it's, this is the classic Dream as well with his, like, T-shirt and jeans and cloak slash jacket. And yes, it's colourful. It's, like, the artwork is stunning. That's sort of, like... I guess it would probably brush work in the pigeons. It's very good. Yeah. It's very, very good. So it's the standout issue, particularly in this yeah. trade. It's one of the standout issues from the whole run. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it introduces the idea that there's more of them. That there are the endless. We're going to learn about more members of the family as we go on. And it is just a marvellous introduction. Considering it's a, a comic, an issue about death, it just seems yeah. such a breath of fresh air after what's gone before. Mm-hmm. to get him to here and you now think yeah we're now ready to find out more about dream and death in particular and to go on with the story because it had get, been getting a bit grim up to that point hadn't it i think so i mean i mean maybe to return to that question of like is this a good place to start maybe the answer is issue eight yes <laughs> Well, I was going to Maybe say that. Would you, issue eight. <laughs> would you start somebody at issue eight? So don't read the first seven issues until you've read issue eight and gone on from there. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's like a very good introduction, I think. And I think the problem is that we'll probably talk about this later. I mean, we said that about a lot of things, but there's a lot of things that are set up in those first seven issues. And I don't think they're necessarily essential, but there's a lot of things where once you know where the story will progress you notice these little callbacks and foreshadowing sort of moments. So it does feel like you don't want to tell someone not to read those first seven issues because there's a lot of richness and story building in them. It's just that like, it's a tough, it's a tough run. Yeah. It's like first season of Parks and Rec. You have to really have to power through <laughs> it. Um, so I think to give someone issue eight and say, this is the world. Are you interested in it? And then say, okay, you're going to have to struggle, but <laughs> get past the first seven and then a few others you're going to have to like deal with as well but like, <laughs> maybe it will be worth it in the end okay and uh, you mentioned foreshadowing you know i don't know the answer to this but i did wonder how much of the story neil gaiman knew in advance or whether he was creating it all as he was going along because we yeah. do get we do get brief mentions of some characters who will be uh important later on in um in the run particularly because as you say we've got judy who's just gone through a breakup with uh, yeah. her girlfriend who's referred to and, and that character will come back later um but we yeah. also i think even in issue two we have the first appearance of the kindly ones the furies the uh yeah. the three sort of mother maiden crone mother yeah. mother maiden crone you know um yes yeah, and that's the, their first appearance, and they answer. They can answer three questions for him, and they're very mysterious, and they're drawn and illustrated very much in the way of some sort of classic horror hosts. In a way, you know, the old crone and the young maiden, and then the, the sort of m- the mother character, and and they yeah. they they switch. It would seem their personas switch. They seem to change places. Yeah, there's this clever little way they sort of imply that they're they're all one and they sort of swap around and they finish each other's sentences yeah and that characterization i think the way they're drawn will sort of stick you know as 
artists change and as the run progresses, they come back up. And I think every time they sort of have a similar visual. I mean, I think they're even in the second book, so we can talk about that a little bit then. Yeah. Yeah, there's characters here that come back. There's links. I think in the second book that really becomes apparent because Unity Kincaid, who's the one of the people inflicted with sleeping sickness in the first book, becomes the sort of hook for the second book. Yes, we find this sort of like interconnectedness between characters who are affected by dream, I guess. Like he, you know, he's what keeps them, he's why we're looking at them, but they have their own sort of like connections within that, which is just good. Well, it's just good world building, or that is, that just makes it feel like a real world, that these people exist in the same places and chat and meet each other. And I think that's like that sign of good storytelling, I think. Okay. So I think we've already answered the question as to what, which uh, would you hand this volume to a new reader? You'd probably just hand them issue eight and say, have a go at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and maybe go back to the origin story later on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to mention about the first volume before we sort of wrap this one up? I don't know. We haven't, I think we've got everything <laughs> to mention. I don't know. It's It's sort of a tricky one because I want to talk about everything, but we don't have the time no. and a lot of things don't make sense if we haven't talked about something that happens later and sort of things but i think we covered everything okay i mean one of the greatest runs of comics particularly from the 90s starts here um yeah. there is some rough stuff in those first seven issues i think and you know you might be best if you're new to it to uh look at issue eight uh or maybe even go straight on to something like a handful of um a game of you uh yeah. and then come back like we did yeah maybe that's the best way in i mean i think it is i mean i get like i said i gave dream country to someone as the first um as the first thing to read i think that's probably where to start i mean okay so we'll be coming to dream country when we get to episode three hopefully yeah uh so next time we'll be on the episode two obviously we're doing the second tray which is the doll's house yeah okay so if you uh enjoyed this discussion um thank you very much come back for more next time when we'll be talking about uh, the sandman volume two the doll's house yes until then i'm eamon and i'm jenny thank you for listening goodbye bye